If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. What did it actually mean to be a peasant in the Middle Ages? Did these people lead rich, fulfilling lives with a good work-life balance or exist in dirty, brutish penury? As an expert in this field and the author of a new book, Peasants Making History, Professor Christopher Dyer is the ideal guide to navigate these medieval lives and answer your most pressing questions in our latest Everything You Want to Know episode. Speaking to David Musgrove, he reveals that peasants were more important, interesting and significant than we might expect. David began by asking, how exactly do we define medieval peasantry? Well, first of all, it's not uh, a word that was used in medieval England. Uh, I think there's only one reference in all the documents that we have to the word peasant. Uh, the word they would have used for themselves were uh, rustic, bondmen, that sort of phrase, but uh, that sort of word. But uh, of course, on the whole, if you are a peasant, you don't need to refer, <laughs> you don't need to define yourself. So, so the, 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 there isn't isn't a necessity to use use a word for themselves. Um, what it means is 
it's a, it's a word used by modern historians, modern sociologists, modern geographers, all the rest of it, uh, is uh, a small-scale cultivator. That's the essence of it. It's someone who lives on the land, uh, someone who lives in the countryside, lives on the land and has a possession of a certain amount of, 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 us, of land on a fairly small scale. I mean, very few of them would have more than, say, 30 acres of land. It's, it's uh, that sort of uh, small-scale farming that we're talking about. You might be able to combine holding a bit of land with working as a smith or a carpenter or whatever, so part-time uh, uh, activities of that kind. And, and, and so not all of them are just entirely agricultural they have that other dimension to their lives well that that um, moves us on to the next question which is from the uh the excellently named colonel in the king's armchair warrior regiment who wanted to know what percentage of the population would have been peasants Do, can, can we can we make a stab at that right yeah well i mean the starting point is to say well of course people who are not peasants are aristocrats and clergy were then only about two percent of the, of the population, uh, about a fifth, from going from, say, 1300 right up to the end of the Middle Ages, up to 1500, about a fifth of the population lived in towns. So you know, 20% are townspeople. So you know, they're, 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 we can regard them as not being peasants. Uh, so you're left, really, with just under 80%. But obviously some of them are landless uh, and, and can't be described as small-scale cultivators. They just earn wages as, as, as labourers and so on. Uh, so that reduces the number down somewhere around about... 65 to 70 percent something like that the great majority really of the population of england the population of europe can be called peasants because they that that's the sort of number of people who do have holdings of land there's a question we've got here from dr valentina bold which you've kind of answered a little bit which where, where she asks if you called a medieval peasant a peasant would that have been offensive um you've, you've just explained to us that that peasantry wasn't a, wasn't a word in in usage in the medieval period but is there w- was there a sense of uh, of it being offensive in any way no well the the word peasant now of course is offensive uh i remember when i was a student uh uh, young women would say, "You, you peasant! If you if you uh, behave badly or boorishly or impolitely, you know it was a it was a pejorative term then." Uh, and you notice that uh, in France or Ireland or whatever, where where there are still peasants or small scale farmers, anyway, they don't use the word peasant. They talk about them as small far- family farms is the, is the phrase they use in Ireland, for example. So they avoid the, that word because it does have. Uh, it can be used as an insult. And in fact, almost all the words that people used for peasants in the Middle Ages were, became insults. Villain, which means an unfree peasant. Uh, obviously, that's negative. Boor, churl. I mean, these are insults in modern English and were at the time. So you know, people had held peasants in such low regard that any word they had for them became became uh, a negative one. So people didn't hold peasants in high regard and they therefore, uh, the language about them tends to be uh, dismissive um, uh, and uh, negative. 
Right. Another question just on the on the on the general definition of peasantry um, from Dr. Erica Graham Goring. Um, she wants to know how different was the experience of medieval English peasants from counterparts elsewhere in Europe? Um, so is is that um, can you can you sort of talk about that a bit? How, how uh, things might have differed across the continent? <laughs> Well, there's a sort of generic similarity throughout Europe. You know, the the the, the, the one can see you know, if, when you read what uh, Italian historians or Spanish historians or whatever write about their countryside. It's it, you recognise things, and, and there are similarities. I mean, one perhaps big difference, a, a difference within England, is that you find that the peasants of say the Midlands, the South, and to some extent the North have quite large holdings of land by the standards of their time. I mean, in, uh, I was recently looking at Oxfordshire, for example, and uh, almost all of the, of, the, of the peasants of Oxfordshire had 15 acres, 30 acres. You know, they really had enough land to live on uh, and, 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 and to make a bit of a surplus as well. Um, it was different in East Anglia or Essex or Lincolnshire when there are a lot of very small holdings. Well, if you look at Europe, it, you find that same uh, disparity. But, I mean, there's a very great concentration of small holding people in, like the ones in Norfolk, say, in uh, what is now Belgium and uh, and the Netherlands. You know, the, the, that's an area of, of small holdings. Um, of course, they have all sorts of opportunities to, to, to do other things and they can go fishing and all that sort of thing. Um, uh, but uh, the, there is that difference in the amount of land held. And there's also a difference of status. The English peasants are famous throughout Europe because we went through a phase of the imposition of serfdom quite late by European standards. So in the uh, towards the end of the 12th century and the 13th century, Nearly a half of the population of England were servile, were serfs. They were unfree. Um, and whereas on the continent, uh, very often they were tending to become freer. They were tending to lose their servile status at that time. So it's a, it's quite a, quite a difference, and it's a, a reflection of the different political structure of England as well. Right, should we move on to lived experience of, of peasants for a bit now? Um, we've got a question here which is probably extremely difficult to answer from uh, Neil Eads, which is uh, a simple one. If you survive childhood, how might uh, how long might you live as a peasant? Have we got any idea about that? Oh, yes, yes. The, 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 that's, that's not a... Uh, I mean, it's a difficult piece of research to do, but uh, uh, the research has been done. I mean... Taking, I mean, the, the the best documented people, of course, are not peasants. They're relatively rich ones, aristocrats, uh, clergymen, and so on. Uh, and the sort of figure that we talk about there is that uh, uh, at the age of twenty-five, you, you you start the clock running at twenty-five because that's when people become visible in our documents because they, you know, they, they acquire land or they get a job as a clergyman or whatever. From the age of 25, people could expect to live from 22 to 28 years. You know, that sort of figure. Um, and for better-off peasants, uh, this is a calculation made from a village in Worcestershire, uh, the, at the age of 20... You know, you can observe peasants from an earlier age. So at the age of 20, they, they could expect to live for another 30 years. Uh, 
But if you were a poor peasant, if you were a cottager with only a small amount of land, then your life expectation would be much less. It would, again, be in the sort of mid-twenties at the age of 20. So, so um, you know, it, it, there are... There are quite a lot of old people <laughs> in the, among the peasant communities. You know, you, there are people in their 60s, 70s and, and 80s. But um, uh, obviously there's a tendency for people to, to die younger than in our society. And of course the huge difference is the death rate among children. I mean, quite rightly, uh, Mr Eads asks about, um, you know, uh, after childhood... Uh, but during childhood, uh, childhood was a very dangerous, uh, uh, very dangerous period of time, and very large numbers died then. And we we can't put a figure on it, but we're pretty sure it's pretty high. So, so if you if you live um, if you in that Worcestershire example, if you live to twenty, then there's a decent chance you'd have got to fifty. Basically, that's that's the that's the kind of system. Yes, that's right. Yes, yes. But after that, you're in the declining curve, and the number of people over eighty is really very very small. You know, it's uh, uh, it, it is distinctly shorter life expectation. And as I say, the 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 I mean, important reason for all that is. The presence of infectious diseases that we don't know about, you know, which which we we're protected from, um, all those all those things like TB and typhus and you know horrible diseases, which uh, you know, and the childhood diseases like like um, um, scarlet fever and uh, and uh, 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 I've forgotten their names now, <laughs> whooping cough, that sort of thing. I mean, they they do really do kill people off, you know, and, and that's uh, diphtheria is a terrible one. Uh, the, these are things that they suffer from that uh, we've eliminated. You mentioned cotters in in your earlier answer there. It, it, it goes back to the definition a bit, I think, doesn't it? Because you mentioned that peasant wasn't a term that you used, but you had words like cotter and border and, and villain and things like that. Um, so I guess people yeah, did understand yeah. their position in life according to those sorts of terms. Is that true? Yes, yes. There's a there's a vocabulary of a sort of legal status hierarchy, whereby you have people who are free and people who are unfree so uh, words like villain serf bondman uh, these all mean uh, unfree and so you have a category of uh, in every village well yes in every village there would be a category of people who were free and a category of people who are unfree now that didn't necessarily coincide with their hierarchy of wealth because you could be unfree but you could hold 30 acres of land which is you know quite good um and, and in fact quite a lot of uh, serfs had 30 acres of land or something like that um so you have a hierarchy of, of of based on on wealth which is defined mainly by land holding so right at the bottom you have your cotars your smallholders these are people with perhaps only an acre of land you know a cottage with a, a plot of land attached to it and they then cannot provide their own food from their holding they don't have enough land to be able to feed their families so they're the ones who who have to work for wages or work in crafts or you know 
or they trade in ale, or so you know, there's some some way in which they can make a make a living uh, beyond their beyond their farming. So there is this important distinction in every village between those with enough land to live on, perhaps even with enough land to make a surplus which they can sell at the top, and then you have this important category of people at the bottom who who uh, have small holdings and need to work. Uh, of course, they work, to some extent, for the better-off neighbours. You know, if you've got 30 acres, and particularly if you don't have a son to, to employ, you need to hire somebody. So there's a sort of exchange of labour within the village. Right, OK, let's let's um, look at work and play uh, a bit for a moment. Uh, got a question from Graham, right. Graham Elliott, who asks, at what age did peasant boys and girls become economic labourers? Economic labour is not quite the right term. The usual passage is from being a child to being a servant because the first employment for many uh, young people would be as either working for their parents and, and, and actually they you do find the phrase used that someone is a son and servant or daughter and servant so they're living with their parents and they're having to work uh, and, and they are serving uh, their parents. They're, 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 they have that function of working on the land or working in the household. Uh, the, 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 the women tend to, obviously, to, to do things like brewing and dairying and uh, tasks like that um, indoors, whereas the, the lads are having to go out into the fields and help plough plow and do that sort of thing. So that, that, that uh, starts... Round round about the age of uh, twelve to fourteen, round about that age, uh, they are starting to work. I think actually they start to do small tasks much earlier, you know, bird scaring or things of that kind. But serious work, you know, harvesting corn or things of that kind, uh, raking up hay. That's the sort of thing that uh, uh, these younger teenagers would be doing. And they'd be expected by their parents to work. However, a lot of parents couldn't afford to keep them at home. And so what they did was to encourage them to become servants in other people's households. There's an Italian ambassador who says the English were cruel to their children because they sent them off to work for other people in other people's households. It was an important part of society, of social development, that a lot of young people will go and work and live in, in households other than their families. And they, that's their first experience of work. And again, it's at that age, early teenage, um, 12, 13, 14, when they're beginning to do that. And they carry on right through their teens and sometimes into their early 20s. So there's a, a phase of their lives when they're servants and then they graduate, if you like, to adulthood and they can perhaps marry, get land and set, set themselves up as you know, peasant householders rather than as the subordinates, uh, obviously a, a servant is. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. 
Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And when we're talking about the peasant householders, then we've got a question from Irene Hogan. And a lot of people asked a similar sort of question to this. How how much time did peasants actually spend working? How many hours a day or a week did they spend working? Can we can we put anything on that? Obviously, you don't clock on and clock off in the same way as people working in office do now. But can we can we ascribe any sort of timescale to this? Oh, well, yes. I mean, they do actually define the working day. If they're working for the Lord of the Manor, who obviously has a much more formal uh, definition of, of when they start and when they stop, but you do get uh, references to you know, starting work early in the morning and, and, and working until noon sometimes, working until, the, un, until uh, sunset in other cases. Obviously, in the countryside, the working day is very dependent on, on light, and, and, and so uh, the working day is much shorter in the winter than it is in the summer. Um, and they could measure their working time from clocks uh, towards the end of the Middle Ages. From about 1400, a growing number of village churches were provided with clocks. And uh, your bells would sound, and they would know what you know, they would know it's noon because they'd hear it. Uh, the, the 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 experiments have recently been done on this, which show that the um, the sound of the church bell could be heard throughout the parish. So if you were working out in the fields, uh, you could hear noon bonging on the clock, and you'd say stop work, <laughs> you know, time for lunch. Uh, so so there was a, a sort of time discipline. In, in, on the working day, uh, but it was very much dependent on the weather and on on light, because of course you couldn't do heavy agricultural work when the ground is frozen or, or when there's heavy rain and, and so on. So there's that that is it forces people not to do uh, outside work. So yeah, there, there are those limitations. We we sort of make estimates of how many working days there were, and. Uh, uh, one favourite figure is 240. 240 working days uh, out of 365. So that's, you don't work on Sundays, that's illegal. Uh, you don't work in sort of formal holiday periods, um, Christmas, Easter. Uh, 
there's a whole uh, number of religious festivals, saints' days, when you don't work. You don't work on the, the you know, on the um, feast of the Blessed Virgin Mary and all that. So that knocks out 30 or 40 days of the year at least. So you know, there, there are enforced holidays of that kind. And then there are ones that are forced by the weather. So, so that limits the number of working days to, as I say, a maximum really of 240. So that leads us on to, to another um, popular sort of question choice, which is about leisure. What do they do outside of work? Um, one from Ben Rice was, what evidence do we have about peasants' leisure activities? Which is a very big topic, I'm sure. But is, is there a, a sort of a, a concise answer you can have about what sort of leisure things peasants got up to? <laughs> well, it's, it's a big subject, but there isn't a lot of evidence, you know. You have to struggle a bit. But, uh, I mean, obviously, it's a, a lot of casual references to uh the, these these festivals you know these compulsory saints days uh are days when when you can t- take time off um and there are sort of traditional entertainments and uh fun activities uh you know in in in, in january there's plow monday when the you go around the the young men of the village go around the village with a plow and uh, uh you you get money we beg for money which they then can spend on drinking uh almost all leisure activities involve drinking i mean <laughs> you can take that for granted and so you know in, in the spring you've got um, uh well you've got may day for example and, and you know there are these festivals through the year which are times for fun i think my favorite one is uh, the summer games the summer games often held at whitson or you know, in, in in high summer and one of the entertainments is often a robin hood play and and there the there'll be people in the village who will dress up and and play the role of robin hood and little john and and uh, that'll be a sort of uh, popular popular entertainment so there's a, there's a bit of imagination it's not just drinking ale you know there is, there is some sort of uh, ritual and, uh, and 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 culture involved in these activities what they do in the evenings uh well i suppose that the main evidence we have for that are first of all attempts made in the uh, in the in the courts which are held in each manor each village uh, to regulate people's behaviour. There's a lot of concern about uh, people gambling, uh, playing games or, or um, yes, play, you, you, doing games like, uh, like uh, um, uh, cards, dice, um, board games of various kinds on which people bet and then the, the the what worries people in the village, the older people, it's often young people who do this, and or disreputable people, and and people in the the older, more responsible people are worried that this will lead to disorder. You know that that uh, gambling often leads to a quarrel, uh, accusations of cheating. You know you can imagine the 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 atmosphere, the people drinking and 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 dicing at the same time will accuse each other of cheating, and and uh, and and there'll be fights. And, and, and disruption of that kind. And also, of course, they're worried that um, labourers 
uh, who are particularly fond of this sort of activity will get drunk and then <laughs> not be in a fit state to work the next day. You know, so there's a there's a sort of puritanical dislike of of activities that will detract from uh, uh, from from work. Uh, but respectable people uh, in the evening, they tell each other stories, they sing songs. There's evidence of of uh, uh, musical instruments being used. Um, little flutes are found uh, in uh, by archaeologists. There's one excavation I know where they found the keys from a stringed instrument, quite a you know, sophisticated string instrument. So that they do play music and they sing and uh, they dance you know so so there is a um there, there is a sort of uh, uh, more cultured and uh, civilized uh, leisure time uh, of which we just get glimpses we, we can't really say how often you know they they sang or, or or what they sang or anything of that kind but we do know that these activities went on Let's move on to a question from Erica Flitton, which was, uh, what was the average peasant able to afford in terms of food, clothing and housing? Which I suppose rather invites comment on the nature of the, the money economy versus barter economy, perhaps? Yes, yes, yes. The it, it, it's, it's probably, it's a bit hard to talk about the average because there's such a variety. I mean, at the top, you know, you, I was saying earlier, you've got this this elite in almost every village of people with, say, 30 acres of land or a bit more. Now, they are in a position to uh, use their land to grow food, which will feed their families, provide food for their animals as well. They they, they give uh, their sheep and horses uh, food, uh, grain. Uh, But um, uh, they've got that ability. They've also got a surplus of goods they can sell perhaps a bit of corn, uh, if they keep a flock of sheep, you know, you only keep 20 or 30 sheep, but nonetheless, the the, the wool from those sheep is worth quite a lot. Uh, if, they, if they're keeping a couple of cows, then they may have some cheese to sell. So there's a certain amount of surplus um, uh, from from the holding, which they can put on the market and obtain money. So uh, the, there, is a, there is a sort of money economy there. And, uh, and they go to the Local, we know there's a, a strong connection between these people and the local market town, and they take their their wool or their corn to the market town, sell it, and then of course they buy things in the town as well. So that's where you get your money for your for your clothing and for your shoes and for your uh, um, you know to keep your plow equipped with uh, chains and and, uh, and 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 all the gear that it needs. And these are things that there will be bought in the town. Going further down, uh, obviously there are sort of middling people who just about break even, but they still can uh, they can still afford a bit of um, a bit of uh, uh, of expenditure. They still are able to consume things. The bottom, rather strangely, the the labourers, the 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 cottagers, the smallholders, the poorest people in the village, also actually handle more money than the others because they earn wages. Uh, so they and, and they spend the money they get from wages on basic foodstuffs and so on, which they 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 um, get, get get either buy from their neighbours or in the market. So so there is a um, you know an involvement in buying and selling. I should say in terms of time scale, that's after me, most. I can say that most 
assuredly after about 1200. Before that, it's a bit more complicated, but, but there is this um, uh, you know, exchange of money, use of money, and, and buying of goods um, uh, in, in, in the, from, in the, from the 13th century onwards, and that goes on all the way through. And we know about that because when archaeologists dig up a village site, they find belt buckles, brooches, and little knives, you know, all sorts of things which have obviously not been made by the villager. They've obviously been made, in many cases, in a town, and, and so that's where they, they, they must have obtained them by buying them. You've talked a little bit there about sort of the, the gradations of society in terms of, of legal status and economic status. There's a question here from Manar Habibi, which is quite interesting, which is, did someone who was born into a peasant family often break class boundaries and sort of gain higher status in society? Or was that a very rare thing? It was, I mean, uh, um, most peasants sort of begin life as peasants and end as life as uh, peasants. But there, there are people who can change their life opportunities and, 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 and uh, well, sometimes they make a terrible hash of things and they end up as penniless beggars. But, but there are people who do quite well. I mean, one way in which you can advance yourself is to go to a town. And there's a constant flow of migrants from the countryside into towns. And, and uh, if you ask where, you know, the, the, there are a whole lot of new towns being founded round about 1200. There's a, you know, by, the, by the time you get to 1300, there are about 600 towns in England, uh, most of them small market towns. And if you inquire... Uh, where these people came from, they are almost all peasants. They've come in, they've migrated from the countryside, uh, and they have taken up jobs in the town as you know, bakers and butchers and brewers and all the other things, uh, and uh, can sometimes have done quite well for themselves. You know, they, they can they can become wealthy. And a wonderful example of a family in Coventry, who uh, came from. Uh, a, a small village in South Worcestershire called Wickhamford, and uh, and and they they migrated to Coventry, and they became quite rich wine merchants. So you know, you you could sometimes really make it big if you were very clever and uh, uh, perhaps uh, ruthless and all the other qualities you need to make money as a, as an urban businessman. Then they, they obviously had those qualities, and, and they could do well for themselves. So that's one way up. The other way, of course, is to acquire more and more land if you can, build up a large holding, and you have that chance that you might end up in the aristocracy. But the the odds are against it, you know. But uh, there are examples of people who acquire, you know, hundreds of acres of land uh, by clever marketing, selling produce, buying land, and you can do that. We've got a question from Jenny Griffiths, which maybe leads on from this, which asks how independent could women be? And she talks about whether they could be business owners or or traders and and, and what sort of opportunities there were. I suppose um, that leads back to the question you were just talking about in terms of social mobility. Did did women have more or less possibilities for social mobility than, than men? Well, the, the women always do badly, don't they? They're always discriminated against, so their opportunities are less than for men. But it, it would be wrong to think of them as you know, totally lacking in, in opportunity. Uh, for example, that movement to towns that I talked about, a lot, of, a lot of young women moved into towns. They became servants, 
they sometimes you know showed themselves to be clever and skillful uh they they married well um and they could rise in in town society so so there were opportunities for women in towns and whenever you look at a town's business community you know it's merchants and it's craftsmen and so on you'll find a a fair number of women among them because if you married a merchant for example the merchant died the woman could then continue his business and so there was a possibility of of um, of her doing well as an independent as an independent woman so um, there is that chance there and uh, in the village one job that they do which gives them opportunities is uh, brewing you know they they uh, they they brewed ale and sold it and uh, that that meant a poor person could make a living out of the profits of of of, of selling ale and better off people could increase their wealth with uh, with that sort of activity so yes i mean there there are opportunities for women they they can hold property uh, in certain circumstances, um, they're they're not cut off from landed society, and they do have chances in the commercial world. Now, there's, this is very interesting because there's a there's a question here which I thought was really fascinating from Dr. Erica Graham Goering, who's who's is teaching medieval history by the sound of things. She says that her students were particularly interested in how far you can identify a sense of peasant community. She asked whether the peasants felt solidarity with one another. Now, if they're all moving around and all uh, you know migrating to towns all the time, does that dilute a sense of of peasant community in in the villages? Well, yes. I mean, it it, it will be utterly wrong to think, as some people do, of peasants as sort of living in a sort of uh, lump uh, of uh, immobility, you know, living in a village, dying in a village, never moving, not knowing what's going on outside, you know, really sort of isolated and, and rooted. And as you say, there, there's a lot of evidence of people moving around. They don't all move to towns, they, they just move to other villages. You know, there's a lot of, of movement of that kind. But that doesn't uh, ruin the need it doesn't spoil the need for families to cooperate with one another because the village is is very much a collective institution because of land holding you see the 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 fields are managed by the village and uh, and, and everyone has a say in, in how the, the fields are run for example just to take a simple example you have these common fields and you have to decide in the autumn when you're going to fence the field off in order to plough it, because you don't want animals wandering over your over your ploughed land or your planted land. So you have to make a decision as to when you can start ploughing, when you've got to do, to, to to seal the the field off. And they'll have a debate about whether it should be done on the you know the 29th of uh, September or the 14th of October or whatever. You know, it's a decision they have to make each year, depending on the weather and and and, and those circumstances. And the uh, the same is uh, uh, the same is true of a whole lot of other uh, quite important decisions they have to make, uh, which they do in a um, uh, a village meeting of some kind. Um, and uh, people carry great responsibilities. They have to mend the roads. They have to you know repair bridges. They there there are all sorts of of. Uh, 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 duties that they have to perform, often involving collecting money, uh, which they become extremely skilled at doing. And the 
canny royal government in 1334 spotted the fact that villages were really rather well organised and could do things like uh, assessing each other's wealth and collecting money and paying it over, that they decided to put the whole tax system, the whole direct tax system, in the hands of the villagers. So you would say to um, you know, uh, Upton Snodsbury or whatever, your tax quota is £4. Uh, every time the king collects taxes, you've got to find £4. And the villagers have to meet, decide who are the richer people in the village and who can afford to pay, collect the money and pay it over. And it all works. So uh, you know, the, the, the villagers are a very effective organisation. But whether they all feel a sort of sense of mateness and, uh, and, and friendship and neighbourliness is, is slightly more difficult. They have to work together, so they have to, to some extent, tolerate each other. But there are all sorts of opportunities, uh, as you'd expect, when they can uh, you know, rub each other up the wrong way. Their cow wanders into his cabbage patch and eats the cabbages. You know, that sort of, 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 of nuisance is, is, is something which people are very very touchy about and then they they, they 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 quarrel about that sort of thing a lot so so villages aren't nice cozy friendly places if you want evidence of the effectiveness and the skill and the organization of the village community look at the parish church and so often you'll find the parish church had major rebuilding done, major repairs, major changes in the period between about 1300 and 1500, you know, before the, 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 the two centuries before the Reformation. And you ask, who was responsible for that? And people, you know, the, the myth develops that these are all the paid for by the local wool merchant. And people talk about wool churches, or they think that it was paid for by the lord of the manor. Well, Many villages didn't have a lord of the manor, or at least they had a very remote lord of the manor who couldn't give two hoots uh, about the church. They had to do it themselves. They collected money. Uh, they uh, they took responsibility. They hired masons. They they designed. They decided on the design of the church themselves. So the church is a tribute to the skill and the organisation of the village community. Excellent. Now, look, there's one question that we've missed out, which um, which there's been a lot of interest in, which we need to go back to, uh, which was um, from Louise Elliott and lots of others about how often and where did peasants wash uh, and how did they manage to <laughs> keep themselves clean and, and, and just and just generally. So, so what you know, there's this idea that they're all dirty and, you know, and and, uh, and smelly and stuff. Can you can you advise us as how far that's correct? Well, I'm afraid that I don't actually know how often... They didn't have a bath anyway, so they didn't have baths. But um, th there's every evidence that they had a sense of cleanliness. I mean, just to... See, it, has to it has to be... There's very little evidence for what goes on privately in the household. Well, actually, there is. That uh, better-off households uh, did have, as part of their equipment, a basin and ewer. The ewer is a sort of jug, a metal jug. Obviously, the basin is a, is a bowl. And that was used to wash hands. And it had a, a sort of almost ceremonial before meals that you would wash your hands. And, and that's going on in peasant households in the 14th century. There's absolutely no doubt about it. So that's a piece of evidence. 
But that's, I was going to say the sort of general sense of cleanliness can be seen from the way they regulate the use of the common stream. You know, the, the many villages have a stream running through them and they're very worried about pollution and you're not allowed to uh, let your... Unlike uh, the modern situation where we put sewage in the rivers, uh, in the Middle Ages there were prohibitions against putting sewage in the stream because people wanted to drink the water, of course. And uh, the poor ducks got into trouble. You know, you weren't allowed to keep ducks in the stream because they were thought to uh, the, 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 you know, make the water dirty. So, you know, the, uh, there, there was a sense of, of avoiding pollution um, of, of keeping clean, so they're not, uh, they're not, uh, they're, they're not all dirty, no. Right, that's that's brilliant, Chris. We've gone through um, most of the questions. We actually had loads of questions, but we've gone through a, a nice selection there. I wonder if we could finish up. I, I just, I wonder if I could ask you for our listeners. Obviously, you've studied the, this topic a lot. You've written a book about the peasantry and, and peasants. Are there any sort of key points, any key facts or ideas about medieval peasants that you'd like our listeners to sort of take away and, and think about and be aware of? Maybe things that they weren't, they wouldn't have considered before. The main thing is that. You've got to humanise them. They are people. And and when you read the records of their doings and their quarrels and their cooperations and so on, uh, you can see that they're making choices, they're making decisions, they're, they, they're, they're careful, they're intelligent. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're obviously people who are criminals and, and, and uh, ne'er-do-wells and all the rest of it as well. But, but uh, generally speaking, the the image we get is of people who organise their lives as best they can in difficult circumstances. Uh, they're not rich, they're, they're not in control of every aspect of their lives, but they try to organise their lives as much as they can. And they stand out as, as independent. You know, they, they are not the uh, sort of cringing, loyal subordinates of some great lord. You know, they they retain their independence from that, and they they resist the lord if the lord they think the lord is being unreasonable or oppressive. So they 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 are people who um, have a have a sense of uh, dignity and honour and and and, uh, and and of their their worth as human beings, and they they don't they they hate the the uh, the um, uh, the way the contemptuous way that that society sometimes treats them they they, they want to stand up for themselves and regard themselves as uh, as as proper citizens if you like i mean I, let me just tell you one little story that when the in, in the, the the peasants rebelled in 1381 they didn't rebel by burning everything down and destroying things and so on. They, they were very careful in what they did. They, they had particular objectives, targets and so on. And they set up a camp. The, the peasants from Kent set up a camp on Blackheath, uh, just south uh, on the south bank of the Thames. And, and they had a little camp there uh, with a fence around it and it was guarded uh, because obviously they were worried that people might come and steal their horses or something. Uh, they rode, by the way, to London. And <laughs> people think of peasants walking everywhere. They rode and tethered their horses. And anyway, they were being looked after by these guards. And if you approached the camp, a stranger approached the camp, they said to them, with whom hold you? you know, whose side are you on? And the answer that you had to give to get through the password, if you like, to get through these, past these guards was to say, with King Richard and the true commons. 
So they were loyal to the king. They, they regarded the king as a legitimate ruler. They were part of the kingdom. They were citizens of the kingdom. And they were the true commons. They were the loyal, honest, uh, hard-working people, um, unlike the shower of corrupt aristocrats who were, who were actually holding the government. And, and uh, you know, it, it's a, a very strong statement, really, of, a, of, a, of an attitude towards uh, their public place, their role as, as subjects of the king and as uh, proper citizens of the, of, of the country who were responsible and, uh, and, and, and uh, wanted to do the best thing for themselves and for the country as a whole. Well, the people buried in the uh, churchyard at Warren Percy in Yorkshire, the biggest collection of dead peasants that we have available to us, 68% of them had caries, had, had tooth decay. Uh, so they did have tooth decay, but much less than, than uh, in modern populations. If you look at a 19th century cemetery and count the number of people with tooth decay, it's 79%. You know, almost everybody, in other words, has rotten teeth in the 19th century, whereas uh, it's, a, it's a much smaller number in the, in the, uh, in the Middle Ages. And uh, uh, I don't think they're very good at cleaning their teeth. You, the teeth are often covered in calculus, you know, that sort of hard stuff that the dentist scrapes off when you go to, the, to, to be cleaned at the dentist. Uh, but the peasants didn't have dentists to do that, so they have calculus on their teeth. So they, they do go, they, they're not very good at brushing their teeth. Um, but the main thing is they don't eat sugar. That's the big difference. You know, the 19th century population, the modern population, is, is the beneficiary of a, a huge trade in cheap sugar. And uh, in the Middle Ages, sugar was a very expensive, scarce spice, uh, known only really to the higher aristocracy. And, uh, and, and I suppose they probably did have tooth decay, but the peasants didn't. They, they, they had a, a healthy diet of, of bread, and <laughs> bread and porridge. That was Professor Christopher Dyer, Emeritus Professor at Leicester University, and the author of Peasants Making History, Living in an English Region 1200 to 1540, which is published by Oxford University Press. You can find a wealth of other articles and podcasts about medieval daily life on our website, historyextra.com, as well as a short video from Chris about how medieval peasants looked after their teeth. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.